Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Howard Hendricks, also known as The Prof. For over 50 years, he was a professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a study on Elijah in Crisis. The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, where we see Elijah in crisis. I was sitting in the office of my father at the Pentagon some time ago, trying to occupy myself while waiting for him and a luncheon appointment, and I picked up a military journal and began to read a fascinating article by General Douglas B. MacArthur, entitled, Requisites for Military Success. The article he stated there are four. First, there must be morale. There must be a will to win. There must be an esprit de corps. There must be a cause worth dying for. Secondly, he said, there must be strength. An army must have capability in terms of personnel, adequately trained, well-equipped. Then he said there must be an adequate source of supply. Those lifelines must be kept open. Then he mentioned the fourth and devoted the bulk of the article to its exposition. He said an army, in order to win, must have a knowledge of the enemy. And he made this statement. The greater the knowledge of the enemy, the greater the potential of victory. And then he traced this principle through military history, interestingly enough, beginning with General Joshua and ending with the North African campaign in the Second World War, where Rommel was finally defeated because of the successful work of counter-espionage. Now, this has its parallel in the spiritual realm. Paul knew this, for in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, I do not want Satan to gain an advantage over you. And then he adds the reason. Because we are not ignorant concerning his devices. We are not in the dark as to how the enemy operates. And the greater the knowledge of the enemy, the greater the potential of victory. In 1 Kings chapter 19, I believe you find a case study in the strategy of Satan. If I were to give a topic sentence to this chapter, I would write across it, victory always makes us vulnerable. There is something about victory that elates, that takes you off your guard. 
that leaves you wide open to the disparaging arrows of Satan. May I remind you, it is a short distance from the top of Carmel to the bottom of the Valley of Despair in chapter 19. The thing I appreciate about this record is its realism. It is confirming proof of the inspiration of the scriptures to my heart. When God paints a man, he paints him warts and all. He tells you the story as it is in truth. From the standpoint of the narrative, it would have been much nicer, much less threatening to have ended the story at the end of chapter 18. But this would have been contrary to fact. Paul again reminds me, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, stop, look, listen, lest he fall. Where? Why, at the very point at which he thinks he's strongest. That's the point at which he is most vulnerable. Chapter 18 and chapter 19 are sharply contrasted. For the point of Elijah's greatest strength in chapter 18 is the point of his greatest failure in chapter 19. Let's examine this expose of the devil's devices. For he is still employing the same traps. He is much more experienced now. The first trap I want you to mark is found in verses 1 through 3. It is the danger of looking at circumstances. Elijah came home rather late that night. It had been a long and discouraging day. He had hoped that Jezebel had gone to sleep. Perhaps he's stepping into the palace silently with his shoes in his hand, and suddenly he hears that all-too-familiar voice, Ahab, Yes, dear. I I thought you had gone to bed. No. I couldn't wait to hear you tell me what happened. You look weary. Yes, I'm very weary. Would you like something to eat? No, thanks. I lost my appetite. Well, sit down and have a cup of coffee. So she serves him some Jezebel Java. (laughs) I remind you, it was mountain grown. (laughs) She begins to ask some rather pressing questions. He tries to change the subject. Who do you think will win the Samaritan series? Ahab, you're evading the issue. What happened? And I read in verse 1, And Ahab 
told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Oh, how I wish I could have been listening in to that. And with all the punchline, he saves the worst to last. How he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then... Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he got the Jezebel jitters. He arose and went for his life. And came to Beersheba, a hundred and twenty miles south of Jezreel, which belongeth to Judah, and he left his servant there. Up till now, the only thing that had filled his vision was Jehovah. Now he's looking through the wrong end of the telescope. And his perspective is greatly distorted. This is always true in the spiritual realm. You remember Peter and the disciples were out in a boat. And they looked out over the starboard side. And they saw what at first to them was a horrible sight. Why, it looks as if someone's walking on the water. And they were scared to death. And then the Lord speaks to them. And they say, it's the Lord. And Peter, in his characteristic fashion, says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you. The Lord said, come. And now the problem began. Because his great problem was stepping over the side of the gunnel and letting go. And I can see him gingerly taking off across this water. And my two friends, Philip and Andrew, are bug-eyed back there in the boat watching him go. And one says, boy, look at him go. Man, that's terrific. And finally, Andrew hollers out, hey, Peter, watch that wave. And he falls in a manhole. And he prays the most significant prayer in the New Testament in many ways. Lord, save me. Now, you can't omit any one word and get the same results. It's the shortest prayer. If he had prayed like some people do, he'd have been 20 feet under. <laughs> and the Lord reaches down and lifts him out of that cavern. How do you think he got back to the boat? Well, I'm quite convinced the Lord didn't carry him back. He walked back. I'm equally confident he kept his eyes on the Lord. The moment you and I begin to take our eyes off the source of our courage, we lose our courage. The moment you take your eyes off of the only adequate one, the only one who can protect you and provide for you, 
then you're going to slip on a spiritual banana peel. You're going to sprawl in the faith. The book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. And I used to read those words and think, my, they're wonderful words. And one day I asked myself, where did he say them? My friend, he didn't say them in the Statler Hilton. He said them in a foul-smelling Roman prison. And you know, life looks altogether different behind bars. We used to sing a moronic song in America years ago. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Everything's going my way. Paul singing, oh, what a beautiful morning. Everything's going in the opposite direction. My friend, that's the kind of rejoicing I want. That's rejoicing in the midst of reality. That's not happiness, which simply depends upon happening. This is rejoicing. That depends on reality. Will you turn over to 2 Kings chapter 6 for a moment? I'd like to raise a question for you. I don't know the answer to it. But I have often wondered if Elisha, learned this lesson from Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 6, I read in verse 15, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he might see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw him. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Did Elijah teach him? that which he learned in this experience. You better not fasten your eyes on circumstances. You're doomed for a fall. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But I see a second danger to which we are constantly exposed. It's found in verse 4. That's the danger of praying foolishly. But he himself, not satisfied to go 120 miles south, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said it's enough now O Lord take away my life for I'm not better than my father you mark it well 
He takes on single-handedly 850 prophets. But one woman says, I'll get you, and he gets. And he has a little prayer meeting. Lord, I've had it. That's 30 for now. I'm turning in my prophet's bag. I don't know about you, but the longer I examine this, the more I think there is a touch of the hypocritical in his prayer. I think there is a lack of honesty. And when you have, whenever you have distorted perspective, you will always become dishonest, even in your praying. I don't think he wanted to die. My friend, if he wanted to die, he never had to travel 120 miles south. All he had to do was to make himself available to Jezebel. She'd be delighted to accommodate him. Have you ever thanked God for the blessings of unanswered prayer? I mean by that the answer that you expected. I sometimes think of the moronic things I have asked God for. I'm so glad. He never answered them the way I expected. Years ago, when I was a student at Wheaton, I was also a director of youth in a local church. And there was a woman who had designs for me. Don't misunderstand. It was with respect to her daughter. She was convinced that it was God's will that I marry her daughter. In fact, she told me every week, she said, God told me. Well, I said, that's wonderful, madam, but he never informed me of the fact. <laughs> she said she had a dream about it. I have another name for this. <laughs> Finally, she got so exasperated, she said, you're supposed to be a man of God. I don't see why you can't see it. I'm going to pray for you. Well, my friend, did you ever thank God for unanswered prayer? Prayer is not asking for what you want. It is asking for what he wants. One of the first verses of scripture I ever committed to memory is found in the 37th Psalm. It's verse 4, verse many of you could quote also from memory. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. And I can still remember as a young person running that through my mind and saying, is that really true? Delight myself in the Lord? And you mean to tell me he'll give me anything I want? That's right. But you see, my problem may be the same one you have. My occupation was with the desires of my heart, not with the delights of the Lord. Now, I courted a very lovely young lady who is now my wife and whom I shall soon see. I courted her in the city of Philadelphia. I lived in northeast Philadelphia. She lived in southwest Philadelphia. We couldn't be further apart. 
It took me an hour and three quarters to go from my home to her home. I had to take a trolley car, a bus, a subway train, and another trolley car. And I have a life-size picture storming out of the front door of my home in northeast Philadelphia with my grandmother after me. Howard, come back! You have to do the dishes! I'm awfully sorry, Grandma. I don't have time to do the dishes. I've got to go see my girl, and I got on a trolley car and a bus and a subway and a trolley car and went all the way across town to do what? The dishes. And friend, don't feel sorry for me. I cannot even to this day think of anything more delightful than doing dishes in the presence of my wife. Her delights are my desires. And that's exactly what happens in the spiritual realm. His will becomes your will. His way becomes your way. His word becomes your word. And when you are occupied with his delights, then by that strange spiritual metamorphosis, they become your desires. And when you come to God in prayer, you are praying, Lord, not what I want, but what you want. Even if it means death at the hands of a Jezebel. Better to die at the hands of a Jezebel in the will of God than to be comfortable and secure in a place outside of his will. There is a third trap. Will you underline this with bold strokes in your mind? This is becoming higher on my priority list these days because I believe it is higher on the priority list of the enemy. That is the danger of neglecting physical and emotional need. We are living in a pressurized society. And my friends, you cannot escape the impact of that society. Christians are subject to emotional and to physical problems, just like any other member of the human family. Some time ago, we had a very gifted student. But unfortunately, he lost his perspective in this area. He'd whack away on his sleep at night so that he could study more to prepare himself for the Lord's work. He got it down to six, and he whittled it to five. And finally, he got it to four hours a night. And he was so elated. He kept telling his wife, who couldn't share the excitement, but now he only had to spend four hours a night in sleep and he could spend the rest of the time studying the word and preparing himself for Christian ministry. And it took 20 of us on the seminary before we could finally get hold of him to get him to professional help. And when his wife 
who came to see me for counsel, went to see the psychiatrist, a man of God, a member of our seminary board and a teacher at the medical school in our area. The first thing Dr. Montgomery said to this girl was, Mary, what do you do for relaxation? Well, she said, we love to fish. I said, wonderful. When's the last time you've been fishing? She said to me, Professor Hendricks, it was as if he had pulled back those curtains. And suddenly the problem became so transparent. But I'm afraid it's not to many Christian workers and many Christian laymen who are overly active, supposedly in the Lord's work. He wanted to cut his time down so that he could get into constructive ministry, but he will never, humanly speaking, come out of the institution in which he is found. I got off a plane for a week of meetings in a church pastored by one of our graduates. The wife of this man got me off on the side hurriedly while he went to get my bag. She said, Professor Hendricks, while you're here, I wonder if you can help my husband. He is constantly active. He spends no time in rest. He is not recouping his strengths and his energies, as you often exhorted us to do. And I'm afraid he's going to crack up. He said he's averaging about four to five hours of sleep a night. So a few days went by, and we were driving along in the car, and I said to him, uh, Hey, how come you don't smoke? How come I don't smoke? Yeah, I've been here all week and I've noticed you don't smoke. He said, Professor Hendricks, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I said, that's wonderful. That's very good thinking. I said, is that also the reason why you are prostituting your body with four to five hours sleep a night? It's amazing how spongy our view of the body, the temple of the Holy Spirit is in these days. Good thinking with respect to smoking and your body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, why put it in a grave prematurely? By the same logic, my friend, why put yourself in a grave prematurely? because you are burning the candle at both ends and all along the line. I love this story. Will you look at verse 5? For it's a beautiful picture of the grace of God. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, there an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink and laid him down again. Just think of it. God sent angels on that mission of mercy thousands of light years to prepare the servant of the Lord a meal. And he taps him so that he's awakened, 
he eats, and from sheer exhaustion, he goes back to sleep again. And I read verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. What journey? My friends, a journey out of the will of God. May I remind you that you may be out of the will of God, but you are never out of his concern. He graciously, tenderly seeks to throw blocks in your way to prevent certain things and to provide for other basic needs that you have. And he arose and did eat and drink, and he went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights. It was power-packed food. Where did he go? He went on to Horeb. That's two hundred and some miles south of Beersheba. So a hundred and twenty plus two hundred over three hundred and twenty miles from the place where Jezebel said, I'm going to get you, till he finally gets down to Horeb or Mount Sinai, where he stops his running. Oh, I know there's someone who says, don't you know that motto? It's better to burn out than it is to rust out. Yes, and I think it's Aaron's spiritual nonsense. For I do not think that is the option. It's not a question of burning out or rusting out. It's a question of living out. And that takes the balance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I have often said to a student who comes to see me for counsel, my friend, what I think you really need is a good night of sleep. Do you ever wake up in the morning with a severe headache? I mean, an excedrin headache? <laughs> you know, it's amazing how unspiritual you feel. I have made it a habit in my life never to make a critical decision when I have a headache or when I am weary. One good night's rest restores perspective. And God gives to this man the basis of some perspective he wants him to get when he reveals himself. The last trap I want to lay before you is found in verses 9 through 12. That's the trap of feeling you are indispensable. Verse 9, And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Lord, I'm the only one left, and if they take me, what will happen to your cause? 
You know, I wonder how many great works founded under the direction of God have folded because of one so-called indispensable man. I'm thinking of a Christian organization which was greatly used of God. It was founded by a man of faith and vision, and he developed it and built it, but he couldn't let go of it. Not only was he its founder and its developer, he was also its undertaker, or he buried it. Oh, my friends, this is basic to spiritual growth and usefulness. No man is indispensable to God. He is only an instrument. He wants to use you. But the danger is when he uses you, then you begin to think, it's me. Rather than him. And I am convinced that periodically God removes an individual in order to convince us afresh that this is not our work. This is his work. Young man was drunk, dead drunk, on a destroyer in Pearl Harbor the morning the Japanese Air Force struck. The providence of God, his ship, was not hit. Subsequent to that experience, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior in a servicemen's center in the city of Honolulu. He went back and finished his college and came to our seminary, was graduated, went into the chaplaincy. I had a ministry in the islands. It was my privilege to have fellowship with this young man a young naval chaplain. What a thrill. Three morning services in that chapel. 300 and 350 men each way to present the gospel to. After our meal together, where he invited a large corps of servicemen to come in, he fed them, we sat around in the living room where for three hours they plied me with questions. We went to the evening service, and even though we could hear the blaring of the public address system from the first-run movies which are shipped over to Honolulu so that the servicemen can see them first, and it cost them a dime to get in, in the midst of this competition, the chapel was packed to the doors with young men hearing the gospel and being taught the word. Men from bases on that island would drive clean across the island in order to get into a Bible study with this man. And I flew back to Dallas, and I was scarcely back there a few days when I received a telegraph that this young man was killed. He'd gone over to Guam to dedicate a servicemen's center that he was instrumental in starting. As the plane was taking off the edge of that runway after he 
had dedicated that building. It dropped into the jungles, took them three days to find it. When I got that, my friend, it was like a two-by-four. Four children, barely born, two, four, six. As a father of four, my heart went out to this girl. I sat down to write her the most difficult letter I have ever written, and yet the most instructive to me. I said, Carol, all things work together. God is underlying that little word together in my mind. Not in isolation, but together for good. I thought of all of the chaplains that I had met, many of whom had no concern for spiritual things in terms of the word of God. And here was one man with a virile cutting edge in the midst of that military situation. And he's the one who's taken away. And I think it was then that God began to teach me that you do not measure a life in terms of duration. You measure it in terms of contribution. Suppose Jezebel had snuffed out the life of Ahab. I mean of Elijah. It is altogether possible that this move might have galvanized those 7,000 prophets of Jehovah in the cave. Who are we to judge? My friend, no one is an indispensable man in God's service. You'll remember the rest of it. We don't have time to look at it. But it's such a wonderful revelation. He reveals himself through various means, spectacular, dramatic. But it's not here that he's trying to get through to Elijah. It's finally in the still, small voice. You see, my friends, God wanted to teach the prophet and you and me that God not only speaks in the spectacular, he also speaks in silence. He not only speaks in his glory, he also speaks in the grind. Another great man who marked me was Dr. Ironside, who came to our seminary on so many occasions. The thing I came to appreciate about him was the refreshing, down-to-earthness of his spiritual life. I remember one day, I couldn't drive him to the particular place, I think to Tyler, where he had to go for that night. So I tried to get a substitute. And uh, I introduced him to Dr. Ironside. I said, maybe this young man will take you there, doctor. And he said, "Uh, would you take me, son? The young man said, well, Dr. Ironside, I'll have to pray about it. And I can still remember him turning to him and saying, no, never mind. He said, if you pray about it and God tells you to take me down there and we get down there and God tells you not to bring me back, I'll be hung. (laughs) And I asked him on that occasion in subsequent reflection, what do you think of a lot of the spiritual life teaching?" 
I'll never forget his response. He said, son, I think it's wonderful if you have a lot of time and a lot of money. It took me a long time to understand what he was saying. You know the kind of spiritual life I have come to appreciate? That's the kind of spiritual life that works in the home of a woman with four small children, three of whom are colicky in one night. My friend, if spiritual living works there, that's what I need. Because that's the kind of life I am living. Have you learned the glory of the grind? To be on the mountain? Oh, tremendously exciting. But to be in the marketplace, to be in the office, the shop, the home, and there to live distinctively for Christ, that's what I need. That's what God offers to me. And he offers it to you. But there are many traps in route. And the greater the knowledge of the enemy, the greater the potential for victory. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.